So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than... We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm Robinson Meyer. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, where I cover climate change and energy. I'm also, this year, the journalism fellow at EPIC. Uh, this week on the podcast, I'll be talking to a policy fellow at EPIC this year, Emily Wimberger, who's an economist at the Rodian Group, which is an independent, nonpartisan energy research firm in Oakland, California. Emily's had a really interesting career in regulatory and environmental economics. Uh, right now, she provides policy outreach and support to the Climate Impact Lab, which works with a number of economists and research institutions, including EPIC, to figure out the social cost of carbon. But she previously worked uh, as chief economist for the California Air Resources Board, where she worked on, on basically everything that the California Air Resources Board, which people call CARB, does. It's air quality programs, it's climate programs, it's carbon markets programs, it's uh, transportation policy. Um, and so she has a really great perspective on kind of how all these things go together and how it's never just one sector of the economy or another. Uh, it's, it's kind of the whole economy together. She also has a PhD from the University of California, Davis, and she went for her undergrad to Penn State. Go Penn State. We had a great conversation uh, about the lots of different things, including transportation. They include the Trump fuel economy rollback that may not happen now, the challenges of de decarbonization, and where Jeff Bezos should spend the $10 billion that he's promised to the climate movement and the climate response. Uh, we also talked about how a Honda Civic that failed a California smog test and cost Emily $5,000 nonetheless led her to her current extremely successful career in environmental economics and regulatory economics. So let's listen to that now. Without further ado, welcome Emily. You know, Emily, I think where I want to start is you, as I understand it, your origin story in climate economics involves a cross-country trip and possibly a battered old Honda Civic. Um, and as a like as a fan of Honda Civics, uh, what is what what happened? What's the story? No, this is actually a true story, <laughs> and um, it wasn't a battered Honda Civic. It was a lovely uh, it was a lovely Honda Civic that had been driven by my then boyfriend's grandmother, literally on the weekends to the grocery store and to church. It was in pristine condition. It was lovely. Um, drove it across the country from Pennsylvania to Davis, California and tried to register it, and it failed smog. And then I had flashbacks to watching The Price is Right, and Bob Barker on the Showcase Showdown would, you know, the car that you would win was California Emissions. And, I, you know, I had no concept of what that meant. Wait, so never it, it, was like really a, it was a California Emissions-approved car that you won on The Price is Right. Yes. So you won that when you were in Burbank, California, on The Price is Right. But when you're driving from State College, Pennsylvania... 
which is lovely, but does not have the same emission standards, <laughs> nor the, uh, you know, air quality issues that California does, you don't realize that. And so we drove across the country and tried to register the car. You know, I, you know, 22 years old, totally broke grad student. And it's like, oh, you're, so you didn't pass smog. That's going to be $5,000. And we're like, what is going on? And it was like sort of my first, um, it was my first exposure to sort of the smog check program in California and then thinking about air quality and sort of the distributional impacts. And I was like, no, this is ridiculous. Like, there's no way. Like, what is this car doing? It's like, look at it. It's amazing. And, and um, how old and so was the really car at this point? Start me I, down. Like, what, what year? So I'm going to say. Not to date you. So this was, it was, oh, no, I'm not going to give away the model year. Um, <laughs> it was probably, I, I'm going to say it was six years old. Okay, wow. Like, so, had, had not. No, and it, this was not like an archaic Honda Civic. This yeah. was, yeah, um, it was pretty, it was, yeah. Um, grandma was pretty hip and with it. So um, <laughs> it was, uh, no, it was a pretty new car and looked completely fine. But then, you know, it was the realization of like pollution and vehicles. And this was for, like my first exposure to it. And I just so happened to then go to, um, I was in grad school at UC Davis, and my advisor, um, Jeffrey Williams, had been pretty heavily involved in California in sort of an external group that was advising the California Resources Board on the inspection and maintenance program for on-road vehicles, which is a smog check program. And so I relayed this story, you know, getting to know him, um, and he's like, well, it just so happens, like, here's the program, I'm sort of on this advisory board here's all the data. And so, you know, I went into this, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed thinking I would just like crack the code about how this was a terrible racket. And then quickly realized that, oh, air pollution is an actual issue. And there are reductions that are occurring. For sure, there's ways that we could sort of, you know, tweak, we could tweak the existing rule to get more optimal outcomes. Um, but that there was a value in, uh, you know, air quality regulation and that the smog check program actually did work. So um, I think you... it was $4,500 later, the car was registered, <laughs> and it then proceeded to pass the smog check uh, through its storied history. Um, and it ended, it ended up dying a lovely death on the, you know, in the right-hand lane on the I-5, um, you know, in L.A. But it was, yeah, it lived a long and healthy life after that. It just had that, that one little hiccup. That's, well, that's basically car heaven already. Like, yeah. I think that's where they go anyway. <laughs> just parked, yeah. all parked in the kind of infinite right-hand lane in, on I-5 in the sky. Um, yeah. uh, were you, and you were in economics already at this point. So you were already thinking about costs and prices and how I to was, but from a... To be honest, it was from a very different angle. So um, my undergrad degree was in environmental and mineral economics. So a lot of it was based on oil exploration and looking at, um, you know, mineral value. And so it was more on the ex exploration side versus the environmental benefit side. Um, so this was really was sort of the first time I started to think about environmental impacts from you know, the benefit of regulatory action. Um, that hadn't really been on my radar. It had been mostly commodity pricing and thinking about um, yeah, petroleum products and minerals as a commodity um, versus thinking about sort of environmental impacts of, you know, what we're doing um, in terms of environmental regulations. I think it's interesting that you encountered a, that your first, uh, you know, encounter with this world was a $5,000 price tag. Uh, and yet, you know, you've gone on to, to the California Resources Board and to Rhodium, which I think of as like two, uh, you know, highly economically influenced places, but not necessarily, you know, places adverse to regulations <laughs> or, or handing people $5,000 price tags. No, 
and I, I think that's part of it. It's um, yeah. it's really learning. It's not just the price tag, but it's thinking about the other side of the equation, and that's sort of what I learned. It's not just the cost to the consumer or the cost to an industry or cost to a business, although that's a really important piece of it, but it's also what's the benefit that you're seeing. And that has been, I think, a, a central theme in the work that I've done. Um, and I think the Air Resources Board, um, you know, the state of California, there were certain requirements when you promulgate a regulation that you had to look at cost to California, cost to California businesses and small businesses, but there's also this whole other world of impacts that sort of aren't required by um, the Administrative Procedures Act that you really do want to think about. And I think California and the legislature has been really strong in advocating for more comprehensive accounting for the impacts of regulatory action. I think that's a really what, important piece. What's an piece. example the, there? So, um, so there's a law in California, it's called it's Assembly Bill 197. And basically, it says that for every regulation that goes beyond um, California's 2020 greenhouse gas limit that was established under AB 32, um, that you need to consider the social costs of that, that, that regulation. So really, it's calling to look at, like, hey, what's the benefit? What's the, if we don't take action, what's the cost of that? And if we do take action, what's the benefit that we're going to see? And so it's really the first time in the California framework that there has been a requirement to look at social costs, which I think is a great thing. Um, and it really does get to some, um, it, it helps, um, I say it helps sort of even the scales. I think we're really good at thinking about the cost of fuels, the cost of capital equipment um, when it comes to a regulation. And it's really hard to quantify some of the benefits. And this is really trying to equate that and give it, give it a fair fight. If we're, if we're really good at dialing in the costs, and we should also be, you know, paying close attention to what the benefits of taking action are or the cost of inactivity. I think that's a really important point. Um, and so California is recognizing that. And I think before where we were just we would quantitatively talk about, you know, there's health benefits, there's um, economic impacts in terms of employment benefits. There might be benefits to, you know, if we're thinking about climate, there's benefits to air quality and to water quality. Um, there's been a real recognition that we need to better account for the overall impacts, not just to the California economy, but to households and to communities, especially frontline communities. And I think that's been really exciting. And that same work has translated into Rhodium. Rhodium's a partner um, with the Climate Impact Lab that's looking very closely and really granularly at climate impacts and using empiric data to really do a great job of estimating at a hyperlocal level the climate damages that we're seeing across the world um, from climate change. Yeah, what's an example of a regulation that California has put in where that maybe would not have been able to pass or would not have been approved or finalized without that consideration of social benefits? So I think it's a little bit different than the federal framework where it is a cost-benefit analysis that you're doing. And basically, you want to make sure that your benefits outweigh the costs, um, which we see in regulatory impact assessments at, from EPA. In California, it's a little bit different. Um, when we're talking about social costs, it's basically it's not going to make or break whether regulation goes forward. It's not in that calculus, but it is another piece of the puzzle that you promote um, and that you give to, uh, speaking from the context of the Air Resources Board, that you present to the board when you're you know, presenting the argument for regulation. Um, and it does weigh heavily. The Department of Finance does want to see this when they're looking at sort of the, the check marks and did you consider what the social costs are. But it's not going to be sort of the, um, it doesn't count in a way in terms of whether regulation goes forward or not, but it is a really important supporting piece of evidence um, when we're 
um, when we're promoting regulations. And part of that is just based on the sort of the regulatory structure at Cal in the California context is a little bit different than how it's handled at EPA, where there is a cost-benefit analysis structure, um, and there isn't the same framework in California. Yeah, I want to come back to that. Uh, but first, while we're on cost-benefit analysis, so what's been it's been reported this week, uh, we're recording this at the end of February, uh, it, it's been reported this week that um, the Trump administration's attempt to roll back uh, the fuel economy standards for new cars and light trucks, which also uh, regulate the carbon emissions from new vehicles, uh, that it's that the Trump administration's attempt to roll back that rule, which has been in place since 2012, is really, really struggling right now. They might actually not even finalize it, according to the New York Times, basically for this reason that the costs uh, exceed the benefits. So they once they fixed various issues, there's this computer model that determines how far they can go in the rule, um, as we were just discussing. And uh, once they fix their model, um, and once specifically NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is seems to be taking the lead on this particular rollback, uh, fixed its model. It found they could not basically get the costs of the rollback to be smaller, uh, to be smaller than the benefits or um, yeah, it could not get the cost to be smaller than the benefits. So you've done some modeling work at Rhodium looking at what the effects of this, of, of the rollback would be. And I think at this point we've like basically heard two different kinds of rollbacks. So there's one where the Trump administration would just freeze the gas mileage standards for all new cars, uh, basically starting with model year 2021. So starting with cars that come out later this year. And there's another one that we've started to hear about now where they would they, they would continue to improve the standard, but it would only be 1.5% every year. And so instead of uh, increasing fairly steadily, I think at 5% every year, now it would just be 1.5%. Uh, so I was wondering, what, what have you found in your analysis of these, of the, of, of these two rollbacks? So not surprisingly, I think whenever there's a rollback of a, a fuel economy standard that you're going to see increases in emissions, um, and you're also going to see increases in the amount of money that consumers are paying for fuel um, because you're, you know, your car is becoming less fuel efficient and you're going to, it's going to take more gas to get the same amount uh, of miles. Uh, so the, the first sort of analysis that Rhodium did was thinking, okay, so what if, um, what if the Obama era fuel economy standards are frozen um, from 2021 through 2025 um, and the California waiver gets revoked? Um, and I think what that really looked at and what we focused on there was thinking about sort of the longer term goals of the U.S. in terms of hitting the Paris Agreement of getting to you know, carbon neutrality in the longer term by 2050 and that's sort of the IPCC recommendations and what we need to do to get below 1.5 degrees C. Um, and what we found was if, if the Obama um, fuel economy standards were frozen and the California waiver was revoked. And we'll that get by to 20... what, the waiver, what that waiver is in a second. Oh, sorry. No, no, um, totally. It's great. I didn't mean to. No, okay. no. <laughs> okay. um, so basically um, what we figured out was by 2035, we would see 12 to 14 million fewer zero emission vehicles on the road and that we would see a, just a dramatic increase um, in the emissions um, of vehicles. Um, it was about equivalent to like one year's worth of emissions cumulatively from 2021 through 2035. One year's um, worth. And that's one so, year's worth of American emission, emissions. 
Sorry, like overall uh, transportation emissions. Transportation yeah, emissions. yeah, yeah. So what we saw is if so the, if the Obama if the Obama fuel economy standards are frozen and California waiver was revoked, um, it could increase emissions relative to the reductions we thought we would see under um, the Obama fuel economy standards and a California waiver by about um, it's about a tr it's um, like it's it's 1,000 million metric tons to 1. 1.3. Um, so we're talking pretty big numbers, and that is. Um, a comparable, it's, it's a little slightly less than the US, the total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions from transportation in 2018. So basically one year's worth of transportation emissions would be lost over this cumulative time frame yeah. if, uh, if the federal government were to freeze at Obama and California were to lose its waiver. So in other and words, the, it's like putting all the cars on the road. Like by the end of the period, it would be like, like kind of doubling the size of the fleet, fleet for one year. Oh, Yes. So basically, um, it's, you would lose reductions on the order of magnitude of the greenhouse gas emissions from transportation for one year over this time frame from 2021 um, through that. Yeah, through that time frame. And then let's talk about this through 2026. new possibility, because it seems like the Trump administration has kind of already backed off that. And so let's talk about what yes. would happen if this new plan there that has been leaked, which is that you know, fuel economy standards would increase by 1.5% every year. Yeah, so we did another analysis that looked at the impact of that proposal or the what the potential proposal would be for 1.5%. And essentially what our estimates show is that that would boost U.S. oil demand by 2.2 billion barrels from 2021 through 2035, which then translates to an increase in spending on fuel from U.S. drivers by $231 billion. So from 2021 to 2035, we're looking at a two, $231 billion increase in the amount we're spending on fuel um, because of this. Um, and in terms of the greenhouse gas emission reductions, relative to what was assumed, the reductions that were assumed if we were to see the Obama administration fuel economy standards in place through 20. 25, um, we would see about one fifth of the reductions that we would expect under Obama under this 1.5% proposal. So it's a pretty dramatic decrease. So basically, instead of getting, uh, we, we only see kind of 20%, roughly, of we see 20%. The, the, ex the cuts we were expecting to get. Yeah. And I think it's really important to note that um, transportation emissions in the US have been pretty stagnant. In our, um, so Rhodium also does an annual taking stock report that looks at in gas emissions across the United States. Our preliminary estimates from 2019 show that there was a slight decline in greenhouse gas emissions in the transportation sector in 2019, only about 0.2%. Um, and so we're really not seeing the dramatic reductions that we need to even get close to the Paris Agreement targets that were set. Um, right now, we're at, um, in 2019, using these estimated numbers, we're at a 12.3% decline relative to 2005. And what we would need to be is 26 to 28% below 2005 levels to achieve the Paris Agreement commitments. Um, and in terms of, I mean, it's not so, out of the realm of possibility, but we would need to increase exponentially the pace of reductions um about three percent a year we've seen 0.9 percent a year since 2005 i want to cut uh, through the numbers for a second so basically i mean what we've seen is like there has been this reduction in american greenhouse gas emissions but if i understand what you're saying right and the rhodium math right like it's basically all in power <laughs> and 
only yeah, a little bit. In, yes. I mean, has there been any real decline in transportation emissions at all? So the decline, so you're correct. So in 2019, we saw a slight decline after an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, and this was from urban numbers, but really that was from the power sector, and transportation emissions were pretty much stagnant, and that was the same across the board for industrial emissions as well um, and buildings. And in transportation, when you sort of divide it up by transportation mode, where you see reductions is in the light-duty vehicles. And um, we don't see that same reduction in heavy duty, in rail, in, in aviation. And there's a lot of, um, you know, air quotes, hard to decarbonize transportation modes um, yeah. that I think are still out there. Um, but yeah, so we have not seen the same. We've seen declines in power. We've not seen declines in the transportation emissions across and, the United States. And, and part of what's happening there, right, is like the size of vehicles has increased. Because uh, everyone's buying crossovers and SUVs and pickups, and mm-hmm. people are driving their cars more because um, the economy's good and gas is cheap. Uh, but what that exactly. what that it's... has meant is like with the Obama standards that that has like the Obama standards have basically put a cap on transportation emissions. But like that could if 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 that cap was loosened, let's say. Then you could see, like, see pretty. You could actually see increases, maybe. Yes, and I think it's important to note that even with the Obama administration's fuel economy standards in place, we're still not on target to achieve deep decarbonization. So we need to even it's it's you know keeping the standards plus it's keeping the standards and and I think that's an important thing. It's not just relying on. Um, sort of the existing status quo, that there does need to be additional action to get deep decarbonization. I want to talk about deep decarbonization in a second. But first, I want to ask, like, there's this art, there's also this question now of March 30th is the deadline for the Trump administration to put out its finalized version of these of this rollback. And if it doesn't, then basically model year 2021 cars will not be affected by the rollback and it will only affect model year 2022 cars and the deadline moves to next year. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's reporting in the times that like, maybe they won't be able to get this rollback done during this term. Um, like how bad is what's already happened? <laughs> like how, how, <laughs> how worrying is how much, what has the Trump administration like in, in a material way been able to do to kind of, increase or at least loosen restrictions on climate pollution from cars and trucks so far uh, versus like, what do they still need to do? How bad has it like, how bad, how bad is it already? So I think from, um, from my perspective, I think the impact of what the Trump administration and their approach to thinking about the rollback of different, you know, environmental regulations, the, Damage, yes, there's damage to the atmosphere and the fact that there are potentially more greenhouse gas gases emitted than otherwise would be. But I think the real damage and the real thing that needs to be considered is sort of how they're shifting the framework under which we consider regulatory action. I think that's a really important point, that it's not just um, about the emissions at this point, but it's about how you frame reductions and how you calculate the costs and the benefits, as you said, um, that they're, you know, they're trying to figure out ways to 
maybe justify actions that aren't within a realm of what we've seen prior in terms of existing methodologies for calculating costs. So and what's an example and of I that? Think, um, like what's an my... example of how they've changed that so regulatory I... framework? I think a great example is um, what the current administration has done with the social cost of carbon. Um, and they and they basically have said, you know, um, they're under the Obama administration, there was an interagency working group that came together and there were set parameters for the social cost of carbon in terms of discount rate and that it was going to be um, an, inter an international value, that we were going to consider the global impacts of carbon because it is a global pollutant, it's not a localized air pollutant. Um, and what the Trump administration has done in um, their regulatory impact analyses that are looking at the cost and benefits of regulation, when it comes to looking at the social cost of carbon, which is required, um, they basically have said, we're only going to look at domestic impacts and we're going to, they've changed the discount rates. And so, and so instead of being, you know, the social cost of carbon in 2030 under the Obama administration interrated zoo working group was about $50. It was $50 a ton. It's now between one and $7 a ton. So it's basically, it's fundamentally changing the structure of how you think about costs and benefits. And it really is tipping the scale in a specific direction. And I think um, part of the concern then is that's not following sort of the latest science, the latest um, economic and atmospheric science. And I think um, that to me is more worrisome in terms of the frame of how we consider regulatory action than um, the, you know, it's still really important that we're losing every greenhouse gas that's emitted is really important. Yeah. But I think overall, in terms of the framing, I think that that's much more to me detrimental than losing a year of potential reductions. So in other words, like it's not necessarily kind of what's happening out in the real world yet that's the issue the issue is that the trump administration is like going to the tools that the epa uses to exactly. understand its actions and to take further you know make further carbon reductions and to issue climate rules and to issue all the kinds of rules that the obama administration was issuing at the end of its term limiting carbon pollution from like across it, the economy and like blunting those tools it's changing the rules of the game, I think, in ways that are not going to end up um, with the outcomes that we need. And I think, you know, we've seen it as well in terms of, like, can we consider the impacts of co-benefits um, when we're promulgating a regulation? So there's a whole bunch of different examples um, where there have been sort of different actions that I think will have a very um, reverberating effect on future environmental regulations. And I think that could be much more damaging um, long term. Do you think that that is like, let's call it the second term strategy so like do you think that's part of the second term strategy for the fuel economy rollback that ultimately the trump administration may not care about what happens to uh this particular set of rules but what they really care about is what's wrapped up in uh the fuel economy standard which is this waiver that california gets that we were just talking about like is that something <laughs> have, uh, do you think that California waiver is like at risk. And can you also describe for us what the California waiver is? Sure. Um, and I should caveat this. I'm definitely not a lawyer. Um, so I don't understand the, you know, intricacies of this. Um, and honestly, and I, I don't know, I'm maybe fortunately or unfortunately not privy to the insider information and strategy of the <laughs> Trump administration. Um, but um, yeah, I think if it depends on what the, the ultimate goal is and if the ultimate goal is, fewer environmental regulations, then um, I think a longer-term strategy that can limit um, the ability of states to promulgate regulations beyond sort of EPA's 
requirements, I think that would be a winning strategy then. Um, and I think we've seen, we've, we've heard bits of that. But yeah, I don't have insider information on the Trump administration. But so the California waiver um, is something that is outlined in the Clean Air Act, and it gives California the authority to set uh, standards for new vehicles that are more stringent than at the federal level. And um, that is written into the Clean Air Act. And part of this is because uh, California has had terrible air quality and was really a first mover when it came to um, thinking about vehicle regulation and its association with smog, mostly in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so California had really promulgated, was an early mover in terms of vehicle regulations. Um, and so they basically, they had done a lot of really good work in terms of, you know, hey, catalytic converter. Um, but uh, so this was a nod to California in the Clean Air Act that they had pretty extensive air quality issues and that they had done, you know, a very reputable job in thinking about, you know, vehicle standards and that they would have the ability to then set more stringent standards. Um, so that's what we call the California waiver. But then um, in 2007, in the like recently, and so when it was first issued, the, the California waiver, right, I just want to, like the California waiver yeah. was at first only applied to these kind of, let's say, classic air pollutants that are local, they make smog, they cause heart attacks, they give kids asthma. And then recently, it's also been uh, apply. I mean, there was this fight at the end of the Bush administration about whether basically California could also regulate carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases, right? Yeah. So I think that's an important point. There's yeah. been hundreds of waivers that have been issued for California. Okay. It's not just this one waiver. Um, so, yeah, there there have been hundreds of waivers. And it's, I think it's Section 209 of the Clean Air Act. Uh, there are certain requirements that California has to meet in order to get a waiver, um, but yes, there, there's been a whole host and it's been based on entirely, you know, all across the gamut of air quality, um, you know, air, for air quality purposes. The waiver that you're talking about is, so this is the one that was the first greenhouse gas uh, waiver was issued in, I think, 20, 2009 and extended. And uh, so the, the waiver was, was, it was 2011. So the first ZEV waiver, the ZEV waiver was in 2011. Um, and then another waiver was granted in 2013. And that's when California combined basically it's, um, it, it became advanced clean car. So prior to that, there had been sort of two separate um, programs in California. There was a zero emission vehicle program, and then there was a greenhouse gas um, emission standard program. And this sort of came together in 2013, which was called advanced clean car. Um, and so there was one uh, waiver that was denied um, that was pretty quickly reversed, but no waiver in California has ever been revoked. So there's really not a precedent, nor is there a procedure for how this would actually occur in sort of in the Clean Air Act that doesn't exist. Um, and if so I think it's um, and if California yeah. wants to regulate carbon from vehicles, uh, it, it does need that authority, right? Like CARB doesn't have the ability to regulate carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases from from vehicles without that waiver. Is that is that right? From, from new vehicles. And um, I and Again, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, you're not a lawyer. And this is an ongoing, <laughs> this is an, a very live issue. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here. Um, but I think um, it, I think there, it depends who you ask. But I think um, in terms of California's ability, I think there's confidence, um, you know, from the California perspective that they will, um, you know, be able to maintain their status. But yes, they, they do rely on the Clean Air Act waiver. Yeah. Um, I think there's, um, I think there's, you know, if you, it depends on who you talk to, but I think there's other ways you can 
you know, look at justification. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. There's, yeah. Yeah, let's go, let's go and set down a very different rabbit hole, which, which is, <laughs> yeah. you also study, which is so, <laughs> what we talked a little bit earlier about deep, deep decarbonization in transportation. Uh, like, what would that take? What would it take to, to do deep carbonization in U.S. transportation right now? Um, uh, do you think it could just be done with a carbon price right now? Or like, are you thinking about other policies that we may need to kind of push along the, the transportation section sector? I think, yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's all about trade-offs. So I think all of the, you know, pure economists like to think, oh, yes, there's a carbon price. And if you, you know, the right carbon price will get us to, to deep, deep decarbonization. And that's the only tool you need. I think when it comes to fuels and uh, transportation, it's a little bit different. Um, you're looking at different market failures. So we're looking at the fact that you do need to price the externality that is carbon emissions. But there's also been a market failure in sort of innovation and research and development of alternative fuels. So I think. And from my strat from my point of view, I think it's an all hands on deck approach. And it's not just a carbon price. Um, it's not just vehicle electrification, but we need to push on on all fronts and look for the lowest carbon options for transportation we can, which includes thinking about reducing VMT and making, you know, efficient mobility, looking at um, freight and transit and trying to really reduce carbon wherever we can. So I think a carbon price obviously is a huge it's a huge factor there, um, but there are also other tools like, um, you know, clean fuel standards um, that we, we've seen that in California. Um, we always joke in California, it's, you know, there's a whole portfolio of, you know, climate policies. So you're wearing 12 pairs of suspenders and eight belts. Um, <laughs> but at some level that has been what's been needed and we've seen reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So from my point of view, I think, yes, a carbon price is absolutely instrumental and that does need to be part of the equation. But we also need to think, um, about the economic impacts and the distributional impacts of a carbon price and what that means across the population and across the United States. Um, we don't want to disadvantage frontline communities that have already been burdened by air pollution and are on the front lines of climate change. And yeah. so we need to think about other policies that maybe um, can help reduce costs. I think fuel, you know, um, clean fuel standards are a really important piece and can trying you, to figure out sort can of... Can you de-jargonize? <laughs> can you deep, deep, de-jargonize de de what a clean fuel standard is? Uh, just because I hear that, and I think it is that is that that's not ethanol, right? Or is it? No, and I think part of it is thinking we want to put the lowest carbon fuels in vehicles. So, um, and a part of this is sort of the communications effort. But like electricity is a fuel, um, hydrogen yeah. is a fuel, and thinking about all of this. So basically, it's electrify as fast and as much as you can, and to make sure that. The electricity that's powering those vehicles is zero carbon or is as low carbon as possible. Um, and then it's thinking about the lowest carbon applications for maybe different modes that are harder to electrify. So thinking about heavy duty, aviation, what do we think about aviation fuels? And um, in California, in the low carbon fuel standard, there is um, alternative jet fuel can opt into the low carbon fuel standard. So the, And we're seeing sort of... Um, you know, there's been lots of flight shaming and lots of talk about alternatives for flights. Um, but we need to think about how we can decarbonize these other modes of transportation that aren't just light duty vehicles. Um, so I think that there's a lot of room for both electrification, hydrogen, but also electrofuels and thinking about more advanced technologies that can really drive deep decarbonization in sectors that we really haven't seen it. Do you think the U.S. will ever fully zero out carbon emissions from the transportation sector? It depends on how you define it. Um, I think if if 
if we're looking at, no, and I think this is sort of, um, it's a big discussion right now. What does carbon neutrality mean or what does zero net carbon mean? Does it mean that every, we just eliminate emissions or does it mean that we push emissions down as much as possible and then we have emission sinks um, or we're looking at advanced technologies that are, you know, have negative emission potential um, to sort of offset that. So I think a lot of it does depend on sort of the framework in which you're working. But I think it's very obvious that we do need to push to electrify and to reduce emissions as much as possible in transportation. Um, and it probably needs to happen yesterday. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask a few speculative questions. Uh, so what year, if you had to bet right now, do you think new EV sales will exceed new internal combustion gasoline light duty vehicle sales? Well, so our modeling shows if we're looking pretty optimistically at renewables being pretty cheap in the future by 2050, it's about a 45%. We, we estimate 45% of new vehicle sales will be zero emission vehicles. So, so 2050, about half wow. in a very optimistic scenario. So, so without any further policy, we're yep. not, we're actually only at 45% by 20, by 2050. Yes. And that's light duty vehicles. Uh, do you think there will be more policy? I guess you're not a prognosticator. I, I do not have a crystal ball. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I would like to see more policy and part of it is just understanding, um, sort of the dynamics and sort of, we've seen technology costs falling. Um, we've seen policies pretty aggressively promoting zero emission vehicles and part of it's understanding the consumer side and how we get more widespread adoption. Um, you know, you can tell people on paper that these, this works really well, it's another thing um, to actually get them to purchase the vehicle. So um, I think that it, maybe it's not that there's more policy tools needed, but it's um, having a better understanding of the impact of the policies that we do have and where we can push a little bit harder for a bigger benefit, I think. Um, what year do you think the U.S. will reduce transportation sector emissions by 80%? Will that it be is a in great question. Um, will it be before I die? Um, I think, <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I think it, it depends. And I mean, part of it is I sort of shy away a little bit about thinking specifically about these siloed sectors in terms of decarbonization. And really, we need to think about decarbonize the entire U.S. economy. And so what does that look like? And is it that transportation needs to sort of bear a disproportionate burden of the reductions relative to, say, the industrial sector or buildings? Um, and how do we think about natural working lands? And how do we think about negative emissions? So and I think it's really important really, to consider. It's really hard, too, right? Because it's like, unlike power or unlike industry, it's like many, many, many different decision makers all responding to their own kind of irrational situations. Um, it's Unlike, say, yeah, like no, managers I, or executives at utility plants or people running a steel plant. Yeah, and I, I think it, it does involve, it involves sectors that are harder to think about, and there's different sort of levels of oversight. So I think a lot of transportation, you need to think about land use and how is that implicated both on sort of the VMT side and also if you're thinking about biofuels or we're thinking um, of land use uh, from alternative fuels, what does that look like? And so I think there's, it brings in other sectors that are harder to sort of um, they're managed by different levels. So it's, you know, when you're thinking about transportation and land use, it's decisions that are made at a local level, um, a county level, a state level, a federal level, and that all has to work in coordination. But and then part again, of what we're talking about there is if you have a, if you, if you have a sprawly development, if you have sprawl, then 
you have very different transportation options than you do if you have a more a slightly denser development kind of development. Yes, I think I think that's true. And thinking about sort of, you know, um, even cropping, like where we're going to um, what if we're thinking about indirect land use changes um, from different alternative biofuel production or feedstocks. Um, what do we think about biomass and yeah, zoning for infill development? I think yeah. that does have a lot to do with uh, transportation. That makes it really complicated. But at the end of the day, transportation emissions are it's the largest sector yeah. um, in the United States. So we do need to really wrap our heads around it. Um, la quickly. Last question. Uh, Jeff Bezos recently announced he would spend $10 billion on the climate. He really didn't say much beyond that it would go to scientists, activists, NGOs, and anyone working to respond to the issue. And nor did he say how fast he would spend it. Uh, if you were made queen of Jeff Bezos's $10 billion climate <laughs> pot, uh, what would you do? a really good question. Um, I think I would lay down the gauntlet and challenge other billionaires to throw their hat in the ring. Um, I, I mean, I think part of it is we just need more funding generally and just across the board. Um, but I do think there could be a lot of value in trying to, We've there's a lot of advanced technologies out there um, that people sort of talk about um, theoretically, and we need boots on the ground. We need to see actual projects and implementation. So I think establishing, you know, a decent amount of money to really promote projects, looking at advanced technology what deployment. What kind of advanced technology deployment? Like what, what so technology? I think... I think ne negative emissions, thinking about direct yeah. air capture, um, things along those lines, and even sort of better understanding sequestration of national working lands. I think that has been an area um, that people have really, there, there's potential there, but we haven't really realized it. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of value in that and really trying to, you know, the, the targets are clear. We know where we need to go, but I think implementation is not super sexy, but we need to see more money pushed to, actual, you know, establishment of facilities and trying to get projects and demonstrations off the ground that can really highlight the benefits and sort of create the markets that we need to see some of these really advanced technologies deployed. In other words, we need institutions and places, places to spend the money, not, yes. just, not just ideas about where we might spend it, but, but actual buildings where you can I go and put in, put in $10 million yes. and, and get results. Exactly. No, I, th I think we need to we need to see results very quickly. Um, we're we're beyond the point of sort of conceptualization, and we need to see implementation. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu.